As we've assembled on this Sunday afternoon, we always, of course, do so with an intent, with a desire, with an effort to do that which is pleasing in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. And so tonight, as we come to another lesson, let me at least, uh, as I did this morning, make a reminder to each of the ladies about the Tuesday evening ladies' Bible class, 6 o'clock here at the building. It'll be the 10th installment in a series of lessons on the topic of authority and its application, at least this particular month, to some matters specifically about women's role in the church. And our lesson this morning touched upon that subject as well. I know it'll be a very encouraging and edifying study, so may I encourage you to set aside your Tuesday evening and be here for that, for that very encouraging time. This evening's lesson is a continuation of our series on the Holy Spirit that we have been dealing with for, for some amount of time at this point. You may notice on the wall behind me, we'll come to Lesson 7 in this series already so far. This next slide is a very brief reminder, just a summary more or less, about the particulars that we have considered already. We have learned, among other things, that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, and therefore, you and I would be reminded to refer to Him as He and not as an It. He is not a force or an influence or some kind of a power. He really is a divine person. And so the second one we noted, His role in creation as well as in revelation. In lesson number three, a focus upon the matter of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, reflecting on that, that very phrase as it occurs twice in the New Testament. Lesson four was the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lesson five, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Lesson six, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that one was last Sunday evening. We learned in a very dramatic way that the Spirit indwells the Christian through the influence of the Word of God. Not literally, not personally, not actually, but through the medium of the Word of God. And so tonight we come to the conversion and conversion's relationship to the Holy Spirit. You may notice at the bottom of that slide as we discuss conversion and the Holy Spirit's role in it, that in many ways will be the first section of the lesson tonight. And so I've entitled it, A Sad State. I entitled it that way much because of what we're about to appreciate in terms of what the religious world tends to consider as the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the very essence or the matter of conversion. With but very few exceptions, most all religions will assert that the Holy Spirit does have a role in conversion. Very little question or very little controversy even about that. But you'll notice the next point is what is in dispute or what is in much for discussion is what specifically is the role of the Holy Spirit. And I've listed the two extremes for your consideration. There are those who absolutely feel as if there is a direct operation of the Holy Spirit, completely separate and apart from anything related to the Word of God. For these individuals, they claim that each individual person is prompted and called by the Spirit in a very dramatic and often a rather powerful way. At the other end of that extreme are those who would say that the Holy Spirit does have a part to play in conversion, but it's only through the mechanism of the Word. 
you could probably already imagine a rather wide difference as to the way in which each of these classes of individuals would approach how the Holy Spirit's role in this actually plays out. I thought I would ask you to note that much of that religious teaching ultimately centers in one way or another on what John Calvin taught. Back again in the 16th century, John Calvin set before many ideas which have come to be believed by people today. I've asked you to note the so-called tulip way of remembering what this is. The so-called tulip doctrine of Calvinism. Now each of the letters in that stands for something. T stands for total hereditary depravity. Calvin was of the disposition, and I've tried to quickly identify it for you, that each and every person is conceived in sin, is born in sin, and each individual inherits the sin from his or her ancestors. And ultimately it goes all the way back to Adam. In other words, we inherit Adam's sin, and therefore we are born in sin, and we enter the world that way, according to Calvin. But that directly leads to the U, because the U stands for unconditional election. Now may I again say, the Bible doesn't teach any of this, but Calvin did, and so much of the religious world has accepted it. It will have a great bearing on what many see as the role of the Holy Spirit. Look at the U with me, unconditional election. Remember, all are born in sin, so Calvin would say. But God has pre-selected to save certain individuals. And those will unconditionally be elected by God. In other words, they will be called and come to what He wants them to know, and they will be saved. They are unconditionally elected. Now that immediately means that the ones He didn't elect, they're going to be lost. And there's really not much they can do about it. They have been unconditionally elected to be lost, if you want to think of it that way. But the L, of course, follows right along with this limited atonement. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed, and this will be the means for saving those that are unconditionally elected. Now, they would be quick to say Jesus' blood was not for those that are lost. They are never going to, in fact, be able to enjoy the blessing of that blood. So L is limited atonement. It is the I that will have such a great bearing on this lesson tonight. I is irresistible grace. And so, according to Calvin, those who are the elect will be brought to a status of salvation by a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. In other words, those that God pre-elected the Spirit will touch them in a direct way and lead them to what they need to do to respond, and that will be the means by which they appreciate this irresistible grace. Now, quite frankly, once they've received it, the P is perseverance of the saints. Once you're saved, so Calvin says, you can never be lost. Now, put all that together and you have T-U-L-I-P, the Calvinistic tulip doctrine, May we again quickly say the Bible doesn't teach any one of those five elements. All five of them are in fact opposite what the Bible teaches. But you can imagine the I especially means 
that there is in their mind a work of the Holy Spirit on the heart of each person who is elected. And that direct operation is what they often thus give such a great amount of emphasis upon. And so many denominations, when a person is thus welcomed into their fellowship, that person has to present evidence of a witnessing event. That person has to present evidence of some kind of confirming event where the Spirit acted upon them in a way that they're willing to, to admit. And that was the means by which they are thus welcomed into that fellowship. Might you and I impress in our heart again, the Bible doesn't teach any of those five things. But what it does open up for our consideration tonight, what is the Holy Spirit's role in conversion? Does the Bible explain it? Does it set it before us? As we turn the slide to the next one, let's first then give some thought to what we mean by conversion. Or more to the point, what does the Bible mean by that terminology? You might want to turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We'll begin as we give some thought to that word as it occurs in that verse. In fact, over the next few observations, we're going to let the Word of God do the speaking for us as it identifies the very act of conversion. And so as we begin in Acts 3.19, first of all, what is meant by this? Peter preaching said, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. An idea or two perhaps for you and me to note first, did you notice? Conversion, it says in verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted. That word converted comes from an original word that means to turn again. In other words, it is a turning about in life. Formerly, one had moved in a direction, and now there is a turning to a different direction. It is a turning to follow a different source, a turning to follow a different guide. Ultimately, the word conversion just means to turn. But notice another thing in that verse. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. The key element concerning conversion has to do, as that verse indicates it, with a blotting out of sin. In the final analysis, conversion is not merely a change of mind. It is not merely a change of perspective. It is a sufficient change in those things that leads one to a state in which sins are forgiven. Sins are blotted out. In other words, it might well be that in your life or mine, maybe I'm involved in some activity. I come to realize that it is not right. And I might have a knowledge that it is it, but if I don't do anything to arrive at a status of forgiveness from it, I have not expressly appreciated a conversion. All I've done is had my perspective revisited, but I haven't acquired any forgiveness for that which I had done. Note one more thing. It says, When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Who in the final analysis then is the author of and the supporter of this conversion? Notice, it's the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. It is only the matter of God. I cannot dictate for myself. I think I have been converted. 
Notice, you and I should thus appreciate many in the religious world are under the illusion that they are the final determiner of who has been converted and who hasn't. I saw a bright light last night and I just know that the Lord was calling me. You're determining whether or not you have been converted. This says the Lord has to be the determiner of that. No human has that right to make that determination, to be the dictator of that final and important matter. Look at the next consideration with me. This issue in conversion. Let's go back to Matthew 13, verse 15. It is here that the word is used, and again, a very definitive way. It says, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Jesus, in speaking about a group of people at that time, He says, They've shut their ears, they've closed their eyes, they've hardened their heart, lest they should understand and be converted. Notice, conversion will come with a degree of understanding. It is not that God is going to hit someone on the head and they'll instantly be converted without any previous understanding and without any previous knowledge. That's not what the Bible teaches. Conversion will follow understanding. You'll notice in Acts 28, 27, Paul said almost identically the same thing in the closing chapter of the book of Acts. The next observation, James 5, 19. You and I might ask, so suppose an individual has become a Christian, but they have chosen to go back into a world of sin. May I ask, could they again experience a, a kind of conversion? Absolutely. Didn't James declare that one who converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins? There's the word convert again. So this individual who has gone back into the world needs again to turn back from that way they now have chosen to follow to that way they previously had pursued, the way of Christ, the way of God. That usage of the word conversion leads us to reflect on the Lord's discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It is that passage to which we'll turn next. John chapter 3, beginning in verse number 3. To set the stage for that discussion, Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night. This man, Nicodemus, was a rather influential and high-ranking Pharisee. And it says, Jesus in speaking to him in verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that verse follows immediately Nicodemus' observation. We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Verse 2. When the Lord replied, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I would ask that you and I appreciate that the Lord expressly noted there's a relationship to the word see. No man can see the kingdom of God. Now that usage of the word see reminds us of this word convert. We've already learned that it means again to turn again. And in fact, the original word carries a connotation to the word see. 
And therefore, there's a strong connection here. You aren't seeing clearly if you're living in a world of sin. You aren't seeing the perspective of eternity. You aren't seeing the nature of what sin is doing and has done, separating you from God. But when you can see clearly, and when you just allow that sight to change your direction, that will, of course, be what you and I call repentance and also conversion. But notice what the Lord went on to say. In verse number 4, Nicodemus replied, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus was only thinking about the physical aspect of rebirth, or rather how that could ever happen to start with. And finally, in verse number 5, the Lord elaborated, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You may notice about the middle of that slide then that this birth, this rebirth of which the Lord spoke, involves two elements. One, He says, is water. You and I know from a host of additional passages that that, of course, refers to baptism. There can be no conversion without it. One must appreciate the place of water in the plan of conversion. Now, it's true that belief doesn't involve water, and repentance doesn't involve water, and confession doesn't involve water, but baptism does. And on so many occasions, as for instance in Colossians 2, Romans 6, 1 Peter 3, just to name a few, we appreciate the place of water. And notice, water is a part of conversion, and thus those in our world today who would claim, I was converted by a bright light I saw last night. I'm sorry you weren't. I don't doubt you may have seen some form of a light. And maybe it left an impression upon you, but following the biblical plan, you were not reborn because there was no water involved. But may we say, in addition to that, Acts 2.38 and Acts chapter 10 both highlight the place of water. Didn't Peter overwhelmingly say, Can any forbid water? Acts 10 verses 46 and 47. Those individuals were able to speak in tongues at the time, but still were in sin. They weren't saved yet. Water is involved in that requirement. But notice, so too is the Spirit. Jesus said, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit. We have an explanatory passage in Titus chapter 3 that casts a spotlight upon the role of the Spirit. Let us give some attention to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. In the closing chapter of that little epistle, Paul directed these comments to his son in the faith, Titus. And in particular, he said, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, to give us each a bit of an idea about that which is being said, Paul has just listed a number of behaviors that are not pleasing to God. Verse 3, Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. He said, while we were in that state, the marvelous and blessed appreciation of God toward us in kindness and love has come. Might we notice, it seems we're discussing conversion here. 
while we're living in that kind of way, we weren't, in fact, following after God. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior came, notice verse 5, "...not by works of righteousness which we have done." But according to the mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration, there's baptism, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So here we seemingly see the same thing Jesus told Nicodemus. Got to be reborn of water and spirit. The water part is baptism. The spirit part is this renewal of the Holy Ghost. The renewal of the Holy Spirit. That renewal is a newness in one's mind, the very matter of conversion in which it has manifested itself by a change in life, a change in action. And so on the slide, it seems we have come to the point then of specifically asking, if the Spirit does have a role of conver in conversion, and Jesus has said that He does, one must be born of water in the Spirit, we now have the opportunity to be very specific. So what exactly does the Spirit do in conversion, and how does He do it? First of all, how does the Spirit call a person? Those in the denominational world might be quick to say, He called me by a small voice last night. He called me by a dream. He called me by that light that I saw in the distance. And that list could go, could go on and on. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we learn the mechanism by which the Spirit calls. Let's see how He does it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 14. While you're turning to that location, the Thessalonian congregation was struggling with some issues related to the second coming of Christ and the particulars that touched that, that subject. But as a part of it, Paul made this remarkable teaching. Whereunto he called you by our gospel. May I ask, who is the he of verse 14? Who's doing the calling? Well, let me proceed back to verse 13, and let's listen then to who it is that's doing the calling. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, one and all are being affirmed and told that the very nature of the Godhead, specifically through the Spirit, has called, and He's called by our gospel. That preposition by identifies then the mechanism through which the calling has been done, and it's through the gospel. And therefore, it was not by a smooth, still voice. It was not by a dream. It was not by anything else. It was by the gospel. You may note then in addition to that, it is in that regard then one can then appreciate. Remember Jesus had said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except you be born by the water and spirit, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, now we have then seen that the calling is done through the gospel. It seems at that point we have a dramatic presentation in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15. Let's now notice how all of this comes together. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, For though ye have many, have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. 
the word begotten suggests a birth. When a woman begets a child, boy or girl, notice birth is involved. Paul says, you have been begotten through the gospel. It's the Spirit's work through the gospel by which a person is begotten into that life. Notice again, the rebirth then is happening through the gospel, the agency of the gospel. That is highlighted again in James 1 verse 18. In the opening chapter of that little epistle known as James, aren't we taught that we are begotten by the word of truth? That's one more time, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The connection then that's made here seems extremely clear, but perhaps one final thing. Now you and I have learned then that this matter of rebirth clearly hinges upon one's acceptance of that gospel. A person might hear the gospel and thus may be called by it, but you still are left in a position to choose whether to obey it or not. You at this point may notice this is a great distinction to that Calvinistic thing we noted earlier. According to Calvin, God has predetermined some to be saved, and so they are going to be called by the gospel and they will not be able to refuse it. According to Calvin, they will invariably accept it and be saved. You'll notice that takes completely human free moral agency out of the equation. Those that are going to be saved, according to Calvin, God has chosen to save them and they will be saved, period. Those that are lost, God de determined they'd be lost and there's nothing they can do about it. The Bible just doesn't teach that. The gospel is such that the Spirit calls by that and every person has his or her own opportunity to either respond in faith to it or to refuse it. Those that respond in faith are the elect, they're the saved. Those that choose to refuse it, they'll be lost. But you and I are those in that position. No wonder Paul would say in Romans 6 beginning in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Paul in essence told the Romans, the gospel was presented to you, you chose to obey it. Verse 17, And when you did, you became the servants of sin. You thus became a member of the elect. But notice, you made the choice to obey it. That's the very thing Paul said. As you and I turn the slide then to the next page, the plot somewhat thickens as we put some more matters together, helping us understand the Holy Spirit's role of conversion. In Romans 1 verse 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul labored to present that gospel to Jew and Greek alike. But as he did, he said to those that believe, it's the gospel that's God's power to save. Now in fact, the gospel is God's power to save to all, but not all will choose to accept it. Not all will choose to obey it. Note what then follows. The book of Acts is filled then 
with examples which you and I can consider. Do these examples correspond in consistency to this matter that we've presented so far? In other words, we could ask, is there any example in the book of Acts of some person with the Holy Spirit specifically and directly choosing to convert that person apart from the Word of God? Let me submit to you, there's not a single example in all the book of Acts of that. But rather, what we consistently find is, in every case, there's the preaching of the Word of God with individual opportunity to respond. And when the person chooses to respond positively in obedience to that, then and only then do we discover and learn that person is declared as saved. Look at some of these examples. In Acts chapter 2, there was gathering of Jews on the day of Pentecost. These Jews, according to what Peter proclaimed, were the very ones who had had a hand in the very crucifixion of the Lord. He said, by wicked hands, you have crucified and slain him, verses 22 to 24. Among those that heard that, roughly 3,000 of them, it says they were pricked in their heart. Notice, they believed what he said. He had asserted that they were guilty and had wicked hands of the large number gathered. Some were convinced that what he said was right, and it began to agitate and bother them. They were pricked in their heart, and they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter, by inspiration, said, Repent and be baptized. He did not say, Wait for the oncoming personal matter of the Spirit. That's not what he said. He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice that they thus were told to obey a particular set of things that had been revealed. Furthermore, we might notice yet another example. Not only on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 8, this time it was a different preacher a man named Philip. In Acts 8, he had gone to the area of Samaria. And as he came to this region, he had preached the Lord and much success had been had. So much so that verse 12 says, And when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. Let's note the sequencing of the verse. Philip preached, they believed it, Notice that what he preached was the Word of God, and it had nothing to do with some special direct measure of the Holy Spirit. Their conversion related to what he preached concerning the kingdom of God. That's the topic of the church, and that's the truth concerning it. And when they believed that, they were baptized, both men and women, and at that point they were saved. Interesting how simple that's presented to us. But look at another example in the conversion of Saul. This particular example is truly fantastic in so many ways. Saul had in his possession letters that permitted him to imprison Christians in Damascus. As he journeyed on that road to Damascus, as he really approached fairly close to the city, about the noonday hour a bright light shone about him. Here was a man that saw a light. Was he converted when he saw the light? He was not. You'll notice he had conversation with Jesus Himself. 
Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Verse 4 of Acts 9. Two verses later, it was Saul who said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It was Jesus who said, go into the city, and it will be told thee what thou must do. There's something that you still have to do. Now, in that chapter, we don't learn exactly what it was in the fullest detail, but in chapter 22, we do. Later, when Paul recounted his own conversion, he said, I went into the city, and Ananias came to me, and he said, Saul, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. By this point, Saul had already made his way into Damascus, and though he had seen the light, he was still in his sins. He was not converted on the road to Damascus. He wasn't converted until he arrived at Damascus, and he willfully attended to what Ananias told him to do. But one more time, the Holy Spirit's role in this was the presentation of what he needed to do. It was the truth. It was the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Another example would be in Acts 16, when Paul, in fact himself, a preacher now, came to the city of Philippi and he delivered the marvelous message to the household of Lydia. You and I remember that when she heard what he preached, then she responded. It's not that the Spirit acted separate and apart from the Word. The Spirit called through the gospel and she responded to what Paul preached. As you and I give thought to that, it's a very different scenario than what is so often proclaimed the Holy Spirit's role in conversion today. Let's you and I then rather quickly just notice some additional examples that you may wish to read. In Acts chapter 17, the Thessalonians. In Acts chapter 18, the Corinthians. In Acts chapter 19, the Ephesians. All of them are examples and they are consistent with what we've learned tonight. Not a direct measure of the Holy Spirit, separate and apart from the Word. As we close that slide, let's just simply notice, and it's a rather fantastic thing, that in each of these instances we find individuals becoming Christians, converted to Christ through their obedience to the gospel that was preached to them. Not a single example of a person praying into a state of salvation, and isn't that ironic that today we're often told, or at least many will be quick to say, all you must do is pray the sinner's prayer. But the Bible doesn't teach it. In fact, are you aware that in the 27 New Testament books, in the 260 New Testament chapters, there's not a single wording of sinner's prayer in any form. Conversion involves obedience to the gospel. Our next slide then will be one that brings us to a moment of conclusion. As we pull together the matters we've seen in our study tonight, does the Holy Spirit have a role in conversion? Absolutely. As far as what it is, it is in the presentation of the gospel through which the Spirit calls one and all. And then, as a person responds to that call, by obedience to that gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the influence, that is the effect of the Spirit in regard to conversion. It is not separate and apart from the Word. This evening then, you and I can always feel free to present the gospel call of invitation 
because that's the way the New Testament presents it. It's not the Spirit calling apart from that gospel. It's the Spirit calling through that gospel. So tonight, if there's anyone who is not a Christian, perhaps because you've never obeyed the gospel initially, won't you hear the Spirit's call? And won't you be quick to respond in faith to it? As you do that, you must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have become a Christian, though, and you've known what sweetness there is in the life of a faithful Christian, but perhaps you have been tempted and have chosen to walk away from it, won't you again be converted as you come back to faith tonight? James 5, verses 19 and 20. If we could assist you in doing that, it'd be our honor to pray to God on your behalf. As we insist through the Word of God, your need to repent of those sins, make confession of them, and God has promised to forgive them. If tonight we could be of help to anyone in either of these ways, it'd be our joy to do it as we urge you to come while together we stand and while we sing.